Da 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 da. The Zelda sound. No one ever gets that. It makes me really sad. I do it all the time, and everyone's just like blank look. I'm like, oh. <laughs> we could say what Zelda, <laughs> and I'll go. Ah, oh. still. That's no, fine. Okay. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's episode 10. Yay, double digits. My God. Yay, we've done it. Um, and <laughs> we're Witchy Bites. Um, and I'm Liz. And I'm Henny. Today we're talking with someone called Jane, which we'll introduce to you in a minute. Um, but first, our disclaimer we're not doctors, we're not psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> the only degree we hold is librarianship, so please take this into consideration when listening to our podcast. We do not take responsibility for any of the choices you make after listening to this podcast. This is purely for entertainment purposes only. And on a side note, we do not have two heads. Ta-da! I don't know if Jane will understand that reference, but it's a reference about where we live. No, I don't understand it. <laughs> People, people from mainland Australia used to, I don't know if they do as much now, make jokes about Tasmanians having two heads because we're backwards. Small and gene like, pool. Yeah, country bumpkins and, yeah, small interbred gene pool. So wow. that's where that comes from. So, so gentle and kind. Really. <laughs> yeah, I've had people say it to my face, which is really interesting. Nice. <laughs> it's quite funny. Nice. Um, okay, so let's start this interrogation. She means interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. going to be hard questions. <laughs> no, it's really not. Um, so <laughs> do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and your spiritual path? Just whatever you would like to say. There's no... I mean, sure. Uh <laughs> Not to put you on uh, where, the spot or anything. Where to begin? I it, That can be a very long story, so I guess I'll just tell it. Um, so I was raised, um, I grew up in Wisconsin in the States, and I was raised Lutheran. Um, and as I was reaching the end of my teenage years, I really was starting to see, my family was very involved in the church. And so I started to see the ways that the things that were being talked about in church and the ways that the humans were behaving were not quite matching up with one another. And I think that's something that really uh, I was trying to sort out from the time I was very young um, because I resonated a lot with the messages of love and the messages of acceptance and the messages of inclusivity. And then the way I saw people behaving in the church didn't really reflect that. And so that cognitive dissonance was quite confusing for me. And growing up in a family who really, um, you know, lives those beliefs, my extended family uh, as well, um, there wasn't a whole lot of room to question that. So as I got older, around age 17, which is when I graduated from high school, I stopped going to church and being a bit of a, like an experimental extremist with my beliefs, I guess I'll call it that, in extracting myself 
from the system that I'd grown up in, I said, well, okay, if it's not what it is, if it's not what I was told, right, if it's not the structure of hierarchy of God, of Jesus, of all of these things, if it's not that, then it's nothing, right? So then I spent about six months every night just like walking into the abyss alone. <laughs> and I lived with my family at the time who had pretty uh, pretty big emotional reactions to me not being a part of the church any longer. And so I didn't have them to speak to. So I really was just by myself. And, and I realized eight, nine years later that I was actually having panic attacks on a nightly basis. I, I was sleeping maybe... Um, Oh, maybe like 16 hours a week, maybe 18. Like I would get a few, you know, 15, 20 minutes of sleep at a time. But it was like I was suspended in the ethers and really trying to find, you know, I was I was quite consistently rejecting everything that I'd been given, which leaves you with a lot of negative space. And so trying to navigate that was really difficult. Um, and I didn't really know how to hold that. And so I moved into depression. And then uh, I went to school because I, I like could not just work at the restaurant I was working at anymore. And I couldn't just experience this. So um, I did that for about a year and a half. And when I left school, I followed a lifelong dream of mine and um, went to work in Ghana. Um, and so I lived there a few times over. I worked for a nonprofit, uh, a local NGO. And the third time I was there, I mean, that was a wonderful experience in itself, very edifying and really brought me to my knees as far as... Um, recognizing the internalized colonialist ideas that I had been brought up in. And, and um, also the last time I was there, I connected with this person who was like, I saw him from across the, the place. I'm like, oh yeah, I know him. I know this person. And um, we danced a little bit that night. His name is Ivans. We danced a little bit that night. I left the country the next day and I like didn't really think about him. And then a few months later, we'd exchange phone numbers, you know, but a few months later I was thinking about him and I thought, you know, I wonder, I wonder what Yvonne's is doing right now. And right then my phone rang. I picked up the phone and it was Yvonne's and he said, Oh, I just wanted to call you and tell you that right now I'm sitting on the beach. How are you? And I was like, what? what? What's this? <laughs> and then about a week later, I was driving along in the car on the highway. And I was like, Oh, I wonder what Yvonne's is eating today. And that moment, my phone rang. And he was on the other side and said, Oh, I just wanted you to know that I'm eating jollof rice on the beach right now. How are you? And I'm like, what? What? What is happening? And that proceeded to happen about probably 30 times over like a six month period. And every time it was like, as soon as I would think this thing, he would call. And so that really started me on this spiral of like, I, I have 
no idea what's happening, but clearly it's something. And I'm not going to delude myself into thinking it's nothing, but what, like what framework do I build to hold this? And it was really, um, it kind of, I was telling Liz the other day that an astrologer said to me once, he's like, oh yeah, so the way that you learn things is kind of like someone takes you up in a helicopter and out into the middle of the ocean and then says, hey, have fun learning how to swim and kicks you out of the helicopter. I was like, yeah, 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 it's kind of like that. Um, And so that really started this spiral for me. And I had some profound psychic connections with Ivan's. And at the time, he didn't speak much English. I didn't speak much Fonti. Um, And we had a bit of commonality there. But the experiences that I was having with him, I mean, like, I was cohabitating multiple places. Like, I was walking next to him and with, you know, in, I'd be waiting tables at the restaurant where I worked and walking in this fancy place in Bloomington, Minnesota, like from the kitchen out into the dining room. And at the same time, I would be walking 6,000 miles away with Yvonne's. And I knew where he was at all points in time. I could see through his eyes, like, and I, you know, I'm like, this is, I know I was open to anything happening, but I never would have imagined this was real until it came in was like, hey, Jane, this is real. Here's this thing and we're going to show you. Um, So that was very informative. And then I had a really, a powerful invitation really to lay down my life in the place where I lived and go there and live with him. And I went back and forth with it for a long time because it felt like the only I mean, just just the way that it felt to be connected with him in this way on a on a soul level, on a like level of spirit, it felt like the only decision to be made. But I didn't do it. And then I spent three years deeply depressed and and really shut down um, and grieving many things, processing all of this. And um So, but in all of that, I found different tools. I connected with people doing um, energy healing and friends through that. And hmm, what else, what else have I done? (laughs) I guess, I guess I don't know where to go with the story from there. There's certainly more, but that I think that like six year period was really my rebirth from the childhood that I had into my own spiritual autonomy and it continues to grow and blossom and circle back around to those people and those energies and grow from there. And, you know, it's, it's all very, it's weird to hear myself tell it linearly because it doesn't feel linear at all. It's like all (laughs) still happening. Um, But yeah, that's, you know, that's my succinct, beginning i suppose you could call it that's uh that's an intense and amazing and um a really different version of how people find themselves on their spiritual journey like Mm. i've not heard it come up in that way so that's really interesting yeah and so intense like Mm. from sort of 
completely different and then suddenly having all of these experiences that you had no um, reference point for outside of something really like monotheistic biblical kind of stuff and obviously yeah, when sure. you're at that point you weren't going there you were just like I don't know <laughs> is, is this, I don't think we've ever listened to a story quite so quietly and intensely as we have <laughs> listened to that one it was really yeah I, I was yeah that's quite a I don't know, I really felt it. I really felt it as you were talking. I really mm. felt that this was such an impactful thing for you. And such oh, a for, yeah. for quite a long time too. Like that that six years isn't a short period of time. No. No, it's not the a short period. Rebirths are never easy. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, pretty intense, like you said. <laughs> but but turns out I like it that way. I had a friend a few years ago who I've known for a very long time and we were at a wedding and he said, yeah, well, that makes sense to me. You, you, I mean, you're kind of intense. And I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not intense. And then I went home and like paid attention through that lens at how I live my life. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I get it. I get, I'm seeing, <laughs> I think that might be right. Yeah. Oh dear. Um, so I guess like, like this podcast is kind of focused on like witchiness or witchcraft or I guess paganism, that kind of thing. Would you frame your spirituality in that way or would you, or do you consider it something much more broad? Yeah, I think I consider, uh, Liz, you and I have talked about this a lot in the, in the class that we're in together, but I, I really, I most identify with disidentification, I suppose, is is how I identify, which is paradoxically an identification. But I, I don't exclusively um, identify as pagan or or, or otherwise. Um, I think the ways that I operate, the ways that I frame things move quite fluidly between many different things in my, the way I choose to hold my understandings is as a container to thread together and find commonalities between, um, between systems that largely are understood to be separate from one another. I really like looking for places of connection and then moving through from one to another in those connective spaces. Um, so yes and no. <laughs> I have a feeling that that's going to be the answer to a lot of questions. You, you might be right about that. <laughs> Which is great. I love it. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, yes, we, we, so, um, for everyone, uh, Jane and I are doing a Kabbalah course together. Um, and we just so happen to be placed in the same part of the tree of life. Um, so each month we experience the same Sephira, but obviously from different perspectives. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think, yes. I think I have said to you about a thousand times, I love containers. I love rules. I love all those things. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and you have felt diff 
differently, I would say. Would that be a fair <laughs> assessment? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so. We chose the first Sephira that we that we began, and we were. I think we were just talking about this earlier this week, and um, you chose it because it was something you had affinity for having containers, and you were like, "What? Why? Why did you choose this?" And for me. <laughs> it was really that it's quite different from what my natural affinity is. And um, my intuition was like, hey, if you want to do anything with all of this expansive understanding, you should have a container for it. And I know you really don't like it, but what if you go over here and learn how to make a container? So that's, a, that's where I started. And I really liked it. It was a, it was a nice feeling to be in, you know, to, to embody the energy of, an idea that has been entertained and explored for so long and and in such rich and diverse depth um, through Kabbalistic studies. Um, yeah, it was really nice not to have to step into kind of a contrived idea, but a living, growing, breathing manifestation of, of boundaries on a certain level was I think a good introduction for me. <laughs> I have to say, I, I, I do like a tradition, especially one that's, as you say, living and breathing. Mm -hmm. And it can be like comforting, I suppose, would be the word I'd use. Like you know where the edges are of that mm. container or that tradition or whatever. And sometimes when you spend a lot of time outside of that, as in like you can make – what you're doing, whatever you want. And if you've got certain abilities, it can be really expansive, but it can also be like, how far can I go? Mm -hmm. Where do I stop? What happens to me if I go right to the wherever this is going? Mm -hmm. What will happen to me? What will happen to how I feel or be in the world? So coming back down to this nice, though living, breathing, changing container slash tradition, something that is contained, and can contain you yeah that can that can be comforting i feel it feels like a hug <laughs> a good hug a nice hug yeah yeah because because <laughs> the flip side of that of course is that you could have so many boundaries that things become oppressive and mm. and um and yeah so but um i like it <laughs> <laughs> I like it. This is I like I know we have other um questions that we could ask about you, Jane, but I feel like this is a really good place to move yeah, into a ritual because we've talked about sure. boundaries. Like okay. boundaries yeah. ritual. Yes, good. I see the segue. Okay. Good on you, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> it sometimes works up here. Nice work. <laughs> um so I guess like I did I did a little bit of homework. Um, like this morning. Um, <laughs> um, and one of the things that I did was write down a definition of ritual. So um, do you want me to read that out? Sure. Yeah? It can be our okay. starting point. Go, go, go. It can be our starting point. Yay. Um, so this is from the Oxford Dictionary. Um, a set of fixed actions and sometimes words performed regularly, especially as part of a ceremony. And then from the Cambridge Dictionary, it also says a series of actions or type of behaviour regularly and invariably followed by someone. So 
I guess like those definitions are kind of similar, just applied in different ways. Um, and when I think about ritual, I definitely think more about the ceremonial side of stuff. But of course, you know, I have lots of daily rituals that I do like making a coffee when I wake up or, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the definitions at least. Do either of you have thoughts about that? I don't like the word invariably. Hmm. <laughs> I can change it. Let me just sit a new just change the dictionary for me. <laughs> no, Cambridge, we don't like what you say. I don't like invariably. But I guess like I don't like it from my point of view. Whereas really when you think about what tra- is traditionally thought of as a ritual, say in a more traditional church or in a Wiccan pagan ritual that that's what it is it's it's something that's set out that doesn't change but for me I don't think the rituals I've been part of because I've been part of small groups or just myself I don't think that's ever been the case it's always it's never exactly the same every single time so I suppose yeah it being prescribed or like you just do the same thing over and over exactly the same yeah I can understand why it it, it is that way because once I've always liked the idea of having a ritual like a, a template sort of and then building on it and then because you become so used to what is going to happen it becomes ingrained in you and then you can work up to I don't know an altered state of consciousness or you can connect with whatever you're going wanting to connect with and so the ritual part becomes secondary to the experience part because you're so used to the ritual format, I guess. So I understand mm. why it's prescribed in that way. And I would like to one day experience that, but I haven't. But I also like the idea of being able to just go, oh, this time I just want to do it completely differently because I don't feel that today. <laughs> um, mm. So... There's this really good book that I read called um, Anthropology of Religion, Magic and Witchcraft by Rebecca and Philip Stein. And um, one of the chapters is on ritual and it really outlines like why do people do ritual and then the different types of ritual. So like some of, so I think like understanding part of that also helps to, um, understand our own processes and whether what we do is ritual or not. Mm. Um, I definitely agree about like um, not wanting to do things the same way all the time. Um, That would be so boring. (laughs) Says the person who just said they liked rules and containers. Well, that's a fair point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love rules. They don't have to be the same all the time. (laughs) They just affect my understanding. <laughs> living rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like living traditions. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I guess like there's four things that they identify as why people do rituals. Um, one of it is prescriptive, which is like ritual required to be performed. So like, you know, holy days, that kind of thing. One is situational um, and also sometimes called crisis ritual. So that's performed on the basis of a particular need. 
Um, then there's periodic ritual, which is based on the calendar. So it could be like Sabbaths in witchcraft um, or Wicca. Um, and then there's the occasional ritual, which is like marriage and death and things like that. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so I don't know what I want to say about that. Just that that's what they say are the <laughs> reasons people ritual. So I suppose we could ask Jane, like, is ritual important in your practice, in what you do? Do you perform rituals? Do you not? Do you, how would you use it as a tool? if at all? Um, I think that, I think the way I use ritual is by acknowledging, acknowledging the ritual in the mundane. Um, I, I'm very much an introvert. And um, that's something I didn't really know about myself for a long time until I realized my favorite place to hang out at like this bar I used to go to was in the teeny tiny closet of a bathroom where it was like only one stall and I could be away from everyone. And all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah, if the place I like to be around other people is there, maybe that's a thing. It's not around, it's not where the people are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think that and when I was growing up, um, the, the, pres- the, the, like the holiday rituals really didn't mean anything to me. They felt so, um, they felt so empty and the days that felt more alive and more awake to me were the ones where no one else was paying attention. And, um, I think for me, the things that this sounds counterintuitive maybe, or maybe it doesn't, but I think one of my truest, deepest rituals is really being present when no one else is there, whether that's under a a sky, you know, and, and witnessing the stars or outside when the wind is blowing and feeling that and really being present with all that's there um, and acknowledging the power and the intention and the will and the interconnectivity of the moment. To me, that, that movement, spontaneous though it may be and, and un contrived the intention to show up in that moment truly present it feels like it washes it washes me and I end up on the other side of that moment different than I was and aware of being different than I was the moment before I think when you were speaking the thing that really struck out to me is that if you're not doing something with intention, then it doesn't necessarily, or like that has like that emotion and feeling behind it, then it doesn't mean anything. And then is there a point to doing it? I guess was how I was yeah. moving through what you were saying in my mind. Yeah. Hmm. So it can be as ritualized as you like, but if you don't feel the thing that's supposed to be happening, it's just the nothing. connection. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you can have no ritual and feel that connection and that Mm -hmm. makes it, I won't say the same, but you have that experience. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I think for me, sometimes the things that, I think, I think it happens more often than not that when I recognize that I've truly been a part of ritual, it's after the ritual has happened. It's when I, I feel the way that I feel afterwards. Um, and I think I really leave myself open to being kind of pulled into spontaneous ritual throughout my day. And then on the other side, I'm like, wow, what is that thing I just did? And what, like, I feel so much different than I did before. Um, and I think the intention for me is simply to be open to what's present in the moment and to be open and willing to step into it in full trust and without needing or wanting to create it, but being Mm. there and letting the being there be the act of creation itself. I think um, in keeping with my theme of reading and being in negative space, I think that's really how I frame it. And I, I'd like to hear about how you two interact with ritual and frame things because I suspect the way I do it is a little different. The you funny... could go first, Hannah. Oh, I'll go first. The funny thing is that when when we were thinking about this, like the topic for like what we we're going to do for this episode, we were thinking that – I say we, and it's uh, anyway. <laughs> we were thinking that we're like twins. <laughs> we've gone into shops before, and people have asked if we're sisters. So yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> so we like we we talked about it, and we were we were along the lines of we thought it'd be really controversial to say, "Oh, is it? Do we still need ritual in that way?" or mm is that spontaneous sort of interaction with the powers that be. I don't know what your preferred terminology is, Jane, but with the whatever. bigger yeah, – Yeah, whatever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> with the bigger thing that is, yeah. your interactions with that is that spontaneous rather than you cast a circle and you said, come down on me, moon goddess or whatever. Yeah. Do you need to do those all have all those actions do you need the ritual container to have those experiences or not yeah Ooh, uh, it's a big thing so well, what do you think and then you're saying exactly that and I'm like oh yeah okay that this is where we're going with this so for me as I've gone along from you know reading my first book on wicker and the wheel of the year through to now the, the, the trappings, I suppose, the extra bits and pieces that you have to do for a, a ritual have become less important than the actual, the working, the, the connection with whatever you're trying to connect with, be it God, Goddess, Universal Energy, I don't know. And the more I've gone along, the, the more fluid and less important the titles have been. As mm. in, like, I don't need to call on a goddess or a god now or a, anything. I can just say, hey, I can feel the energy out there. Let's interact mm-hmm. with it. Let's feel it. Mm-hmm. Let's be with it in this space as it is now. 
and I have never thought of those things as being ritualized in any way until you just mm. said it then I'm like oh I do that often and I've never thought of it as even particularly witchy or pagan it's just something mm. I stand outside under the moon and go oh I can feel a thing Woohoo! Mm. hey thing whatever you are energy I'm here now that's very interesting and then so, it's just, then I just go back inside <laughs> and it's mm. like it's it's just a thing that happens so it's really interesting for me because I had never connected those things before. I knew mm. it was different. I knew it was something other people didn't do. But sure. to put it in in, a, in the context of you had a ritualized moment or you could compare this to ritual, hadn't thought of it before at all. So are those moments that you experience in those spontaneous connections do the things you experience in those moments tie into any experiences you have in more intentional ritual or, or um, like you were naming before having ritual be essentially a tool to get you to this altered state of consciousness or this experience. I'm curious if you have connections between those smaller um interactions the moments with the moon or whatever else it might be and and other rituals that you can remember I suppose I feel that I suppose the only connection I can think of right off the top of my head wow unusual to be asked questions thank you (laughs) it's it's I can feel that it's an energy that is similar that it's something that I've experienced before though not exactly the same but it's like oh this is this is that experience but that's about all because I don't know I can it can happen regularly if I wanted it to kind of thing and sometimes I'm like I don't know work things are happening so I'm just like no can't do that right now and other times I'm like no I'm really open I'm okay to connect with whatever this is now so hey whatever's out there come and say hey so the connection is that it feels the same but I haven't put it in that context before so I don't know openly so I've known but I haven't known I don't know I haven't known consciously yeah well I I um I just want to put something out there as a possibility for for that like not making connections between those two things, because my experience and kind of understanding is that our experience when we name something versus when we choose not to name it really changes the way we experience it. And the things that we experience that we choose not to name or even can't name have a much subtler tenor then do the things that we choose to name. And it, it tends to be that the things that we find names for, like, you know, ritual or ceremony as the example, because that's what we're talking about. Um, I think, I think that a piece of that is that when we talk about that, it activates more than just our intuition, right? It activates our intellectual brain. It activates this part of us that has, definitions and has um, stories and and these different pieces. And I think that um, 
there is a subtler voice that exists in the present moment that sometimes when it's separated from the names and the stories that come, you know, that come from the way that we name things, there is that piece that we can recognize. And at the same time, it's so distinctly different because there's even more than half of the the energy that we're accustomed to being with it isn't there. But yeah, I, I feel like I'm going a little circular though. But um, anyway, I don't if that's useful or or resonates with you at all. It does. It does. As for, uh, for me, as well, I think I felt like if I put a name to it, it might put boundaries there. Mm. So it's like this is yeah. this thing, so it has to be this way. Oh, it's not, and then the connection will be lost. So often I would just let it sort of play out yeah, and let it do whatever it wants to do. But I think that's more about my understanding of whatever I was connecting to rather than it being more or less important, significant. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, I don't – yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it's a matter of more or less significant. I think it's a matter of um, different pathways in. Yeah. Yeah. Liz, what's your experience with ritual? I was thinking about I was thinking about um, a couple of things while Hannah was talking, and um, I think you both know this story. But one I was thinking about was how I've actually thought for a while that ritual isn't important. Like, um, um, and that sort of came out of an experience I had when my motorbike was stolen. And I was walking to work. So I went outside, found my motorbike stolen and the police came and they dusted for fingerprints and all that kind of stuff. And I was walking to work, listening to Marilyn Manson, some nice angry music. (laughs) And I realized that um, I had raised all this energy, like just because I, you know, I was walking fast. I was like stewing on this emotion and I was like, what am I going to do with this energy? And I thought, I'm sending it out. I'm going to send it out and I'm getting my motorbike back. And two days later, I actually did get my motorbike back. It was found in one of the um, uh, low socioeconomic suburbs here in um, Hobart. And it um, had a few scratches, but otherwise it was fine. Um, And on that same night, a whole bunch of other motorbikes had been stolen and they were found burnt out in the bush. So I was like, felt very lucky one that I managed to get my bike back, unlike these poor people that had like BMW motorbikes stolen. So, um, but um, that experience made me think that ritual isn't necessarily important. But um, as I was talking with you, Jane, earlier in the week, you you pointed out to me that 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 there was still ritual involved in what I did, like that whole raising energy and, you know, doing something to get something back. And that is kind of like when I was talking about why ritual, (laughs) I'd call that a crisis ritual. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it was a way to 
to change potentially the outcome of, of what was going to happen. Um, the other thing I was thinking about was that like most of the ritual that I have done, I have experienced with other people. Like I had mm. done stuff on my own as well. Um, but most of like the really pres prescribed, you know, Sabbath kind of celebration and that kind of thing I've done with other people. And it does feel different. Um, and I don't know if it's because I'm also an introvert and Hannah, Hannah would say that Hannah's an introvert as well. <laughs> um, um, but I actually find group rituals in some ways frustrating because they can be really distracting from getting in and doing the thing like you know if someone just starts talking about something really random while you're trying to concentrate it's really hard and so like yeah <laughs> I actually wrote that in the questions I was like do you like working ritual with other people or do you find them distracting <laughs> find them distracting like I love what I love about uh, kind of like I'm going to go with a drag queen reference here yes. kind of like with <laughs> with drag you've got your drag family we kind of have our witch family which is based on you know like a chosen family with similar ideals or different ideals and might not be similar <laughs> but you know you can get along with yeah and that's the thing that I love about group work mm. it's not necessarily the actual work it's more the family that comes with it so connections to the other people yeah rather than connections to the divine I think um yeah. But I wonder if it would be different if you were in like a group that was, you know, like um, Alexandrian Wiccan, for example, which has like those really structured rituals and really structured motions and really mm. from what I know, like it's not like yeah. I know, but um, whether that would be different again, like I haven't experienced it to know. Um, but yeah, anyway, just that, they're just the things I was thinking. <laughs> So you you said um, it's connection to other people rather than connection with the divine. I'm curious, is it connection to the divine by connecting to other people? Is it, you know, it, like it's not that it's one or the other necessarily, but I think in looking at this th these things, it can be really useful to like, like we were talking about with Hod, you know, it's the framing and reframing and like, okay, well, where can we shift this frame and, and look at it, look at it again? Um, yeah, I'm curious what you think about that. Does it feel that way? It feels different. Um, and that could be because like, um, I do struggle with forming connections with other mm -hmm. people. Um, and so... Yeah, but you definitely you could look at it in that it is a connection to the divine. Um, but it doesn't feel that way for me mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And like Hannah and I have talked a lot about how we kind of work similarly in some stuff. So maybe we could use our connection together to also connect to the divine but mm. um um yeah no I'd have to think about it I'm not really sure it's a, I, I a good question I see how that works and I see how that would be 
now I've forgotten what I was going to say. I can see how that works <laughs> and I could see that that would be like it's an important thing when you want to do ritual with other people and when you do perform ritual in a group and just being together is part is part of the ritual because you mm. come together to do these things so often or even not so often. But when you are in a group with these people, like this certain set of people, your family, your witch family, then that's what you're going to do. You meet with them to do something that is, for want of a better word, spiritual, even if it's not mm-hmm. particularly ritual each time. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. I don't know for me if oh, – it makes sense in my mind. So I think that it could – that could be influencing how I feel about it. So I would say that, yes, I agree. It could be seen from the flip side. It could be, well, I'm with these people. So just being with these people who I perform ritual with is 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 a connection to my version of divine, my version mm-hmm. of spirit, I suppose, yeah. For me that works, though I have never thought about it at the time, so, hmm. yeah. I'm kind of thinking that, like, it really comes down to – to your own experience within that space with other people like I'm sure that they influence that experience of course but if it doesn't have any meaning to you then it's like just going through the motions and then it probably wouldn't feel like it has Mm. that connection um definitely yeah and that's also why it can be hard to have a group even a small group of people working together because sometimes and especially for me, like, this is terrible, but I have to sort of feel it before I can, you know, by myself or with a group. So if it's not working for me at that time, it'll, yeah, just be the motions and it won't have much, Yeah, it won't have much meaning. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me in group, in group things, and my interaction there is very limited. I found like a, a, a community that... I have attended a few things with over the last year, but um, the thing that I find is I'm very attuned to like meta dynamics between people. And if there's weird stuff happening there, I'm just like, I'm not, I'm not going into the space with you guys. Like I'm going to go, I'll go like a quarter mile this way and feel it from over there. But I am not interested in stepping into this space because like there is some weird stuff that is not being named and Mm. no, no, not doing it. And it's difficult to know. Um, I mean, these, these collections of people that I've been with, it's been large groups of people, like a hundred, a hundred people. And, um, in one of those occasions, it ended up like, I realized that day, this thing I'm not supposed to be a part of. And so I didn't participate and it ended up being an incredibly violent and traumatizing, um, experience for a lot of people. And it's really interesting to, to notice that like my intuition says, yeah, you don't want to be a part of this. And then I'm, I'm just, that's been a really interesting learning experience for me in relation to group ritual and being like, oh, I just thought that the reason I wasn't a part of it was because like, I didn't resonate with the story, but turns out it was something a little bit different. There were other things going on. Um, 
And so I won't say I'm skeptical of group ritual. I don't, I don't really feel that way, but like you're saying, it really has to feel a very specific way, you know, and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to commit myself and say like, yes, I will be there at 7 PM on Sunday for this ritual. I'll be like, yeah, I'll see what it feels like at 6 45 PM on Sunday. And then like, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll be which there. Which doesn't necessarily work well right. with groups because right. you need people to commit. <laughs> yeah. <I get> that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can I can really relate to that too. I can really relate to you just have to feel it, and sometimes yeah. you don't. And I don't know yeah. if it's a, a a sensitivity thing or just a introvert thing. And I used to think that I used to just think, oh well, you're just being whatever, too picky, or you're just feeling bad today, and it's not nothing to do with them. And you know, the ritual, the group would go along and have a great ritual. Mm. But, yeah, I just, yeah, sometimes it just didn't work. So what about, uh, sorry, go ahead, Liz. No, you go. No, you go. Well, I'm curious about that edge between, um, you know, since we're talking about ritual and having, like, I don't celebrate holidays. Um, I feel, I feel resistant to celebrating holidays <laughs> where other people are celebrating holidays because, I don't like to participate in things like that. Um, so in your personal practice, do you ever find yourself doing things um, like having rituals and doing them even when your intuition might tell you that it's not actually what you want to be doing in the moment? Or do you find yourself adhering to personal rituals Um and hearing, you know, and hearing internal guidance, maybe nudging you to create it a little bit differently and then have resistance. Like, yeah, I'll stop there. I see your question. <laughs> I see your question. Um, you happy for me to jump in, Hannah? Yep, you go first. Yeah. Um, I think if my intuition was off, and I had planned to do something that day and it was on my own, I wouldn't do it. I would just go, okay, this is not going to work. I'm not going to get what I need from this situation. And I'm, I'm feeling like maybe this is not the right time to do it. That would be how I would do it if I was on my own. If I was in a group, um, it's harder because you know me, I love my boundaries. <laughs> and so, and I've been raised to always turn up when you say you're going, like if you get to the day and be like, I don't feel like it. It's like, well, you've made a commitment. You got to go. So, um, so in that way it's different, but I don't think I've ever gone to something and it be that, that I haven't felt like going to and it be bad. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that, didn't have meaning mm -hmm. I guess yeah and you learn something about yourself when you do things like that you're like okay well <laughs> this didn't happen because you know I was feeling this and I recognize this about myself and you know blah 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 um yeah much like my answer is actually much the same as as Liz's if if I came up against an intuitive feeling that I didn't want to do something myself I just not do it mm -hmm. I have also I suppose, pushed through feelings of just not wanting to do something that's like a personal practice, personal ritual, but it's more like 
I just can't be bothered more mm-hmm. than an intuitive, oh, no, 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 you, you shouldn't do this. Sure. So, um, yeah, and I often have to do that because I've got some health complications. So often I'm just tired or mm-hmm. whatever and I'm just not feeling it in that way. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so I have to work through that often and it's just one of my things that I am here to learn and deal with. Mm-hmm. So I just do kind of thing. But I don't often – or if I don't often have real intuitive hits of like this is going to be – a not good thing to do mm-hmm. and I would definitely follow those like if I felt a oh, not so much danger but like a, a real negative feeling it's more you know I'm tired now and this will take energy and should I conserve that to do this other thing and blah 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 so right yeah so often like my intuitive feelings especially with ritual things I'm doing I have to take that into account like is it is it a health thing or is this actual actually like you're getting a a feeling about something or is it just, mm-hmm. you know, you're run down or, or something like that? Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that really brings up a bunch more questions for me, but, like, and I'm not sure, like, because I think a lot about what personal responsibility we have as far as people who are showing up to community creation um, on a magic mm. on a magical level and then how we create loving accountability in the context of community right because like if people are showing up with trauma that they don't know about it might be that their intuition just says like hey, you maybe don't want to go to this and doesn't say this might be a big scary thing because their nervous system doesn't know how to handle it so like, that is an issue I've been seeing come up a lot in communities and it's, it's, it's pretty destructive. And the mm. way that it seems to get handled in community is it becomes somebody else's problem or it becomes the community problem. It's like, okay, well, that's one way to handle it. But what about our individual responsibility to come into a place where we're creating with other people being as well as we can be and then how do we as communities who are co-creating together hold another when they're showing up in a way that's that's causing harm even if it's unintentional you know and like I understand that that might not be something we can talk about on this podcast or maybe it is but um I think that that's like a really important and very deeply nuanced question that brings in a lot of like psychology and community support and individual accountability to ourselves and and learning how we hold ourselves so that we can show up in integrity to community and be able to be held in integrity in the context of community when we unintentionally cause harm, you know? Mm. It's, a, it's very interesting. I think, yeah, I agree. It's so, so important because something I've struggled, not struggled, something I've thought about a lot, and I think this can probably relate, is that when you enter into a ritual of whatever kind with another person, whoever they are, even if they're like your closest friend in the world, it's this really intimate, personal thing. You get really close to those other people even mm-hmm. if you don't realize it at the time and mm-hmm. what happens what's the exchange like you're putting energy out there so are they but you're also really open and so are they 
what happens. So right. if you're going into ritual with people who you aren't really comfortable with or don't know well or anything like that, do you want to go into that space with those people? Right. And if you've got someone who isn't or can't take responsibility for their own, as you say, their trauma or they don't even know that they've right. got this thing happening, what happens? Because you're having an energy exchange, a really intimate energy exchange with, with right. them. At least that's how I view and have experienced my rituals, the ones I've been in. Yeah. So I think it's really important. You have to take really, you have to consider it. You have to be really considerate. You have to think about yourself and what you're going to do and be with the other people you're going to be in circle with. I don't know, as I said earlier, I haven't been in a really big ritual with mm-hmm. a lot of people, so I don't know how that changes it. Mine have all been quite small, intimate, not many people about, mm-hmm. like not many people, it's very small groups, like four to six, I think six sure. is the biggest group I've been with. So mm-hmm. I don't know, like I don't know if being in the bigger ritual changes that. Oh, well, it would. It would change it a lot, but I can't speak to that experience. So for me, it's always really personal, really intimate. So mm-hmm. having someone in the space with trauma, would it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work at all. Well, it doesn't work if that person doesn't take responsibility for it. Right. And like I said, even if you're just not quite feeling it or something's happened, you want to take that energy into that really intimate space with those other people when it could just be negative. Like you've got to... You've got to take responsibility for that. You've got to work, think about, as we said earlier, think about the container you're creating with the ritual. Right. Do you want it to be nice? Do you want it to be a healthy one that supports all these people? Right. Yeah. Essentially, I think I'm just, I just agreed with everything you said in a really long rambly way. <laughs> um, so what did I rudely dip out on? Don't remember. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't either. What should we rudely jump back in on? Whatever we want. We could do the animal stories. So I did say while we were having our break that one of our questions was, do you have animals in your household and do you consider them familiars to start with or just companions? And are they allowed to participate in ritual? (laughs) Help, in inverted commas, which means be hugely disruptive. Um, or do you have to keep them out because they're pains in the backside? Well, <laughs> they bite your boob. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get a lot of that in my house. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I do live with a dog, Mona, and she and I have been together for almost 11 years. Oh, wow. Um, and she is my emotional familiar. She has been... Uh, a very intimate friend to me and um, yeah, for a long time since she was a young puppy. And then I also live with a cat named Sybil, which is one of like 12 names of hers. Her original name when I got her was Bella and then it was Phoebe and then it was Phryne and then it was a number of other things I don't remember, but it's Sybil for now. She, uh, 
is my magical interdimensional familiar. She does a lot of astral travel. It's very strange, but awesome. She'll like lay, my roommate and I like to call her the little battery pack because she'll (laughs) just, when she senses that you're working on something, she'll just come and either lay right like this and just kind of, or get on your lap. And it's just like, she's charging and doing this thing with you. And she really like blinks in and out of existence. You can see it in her eyes and you can feel it. Like you stop being able to feel the weight of her on your lap and then it lands again and it like blinks in and out. She's a wildly magical uh, creature. And one of the, one of the things that I do, I don't, I guess I wouldn't call it a ritual. I don't do it with any particularly regular, any particular regularity though it is done with intention. Um, I've long been connected with stones. Uh, my family spent a lot of time picking up stones by the lake, by the river growing up. And my mom did the same growing up. And, um, so I will arrange stones with intentions of creating portals. I like to create a lot of like interdimensional portals for astral travel and, and that kind of thing. And, boy, I can't do them when I'm sharing a room with my cat. It's like, as soon as, as soon as it's created, she's like, oh yeah. And she's right in the middle, <laughs> throwing seats, everything around. Seats on the stones. Yeah. 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 Or like helping. <sighs> helping. So helpful. Helping. Yeah. I realized, um, she's downstairs right now staying my roommates down there and, and I'm up here and we're temporarily at his folks house during this pandemic. And so he wanted to hang out with her for a while. And I got up here and I was like, Oh my gosh, it's been months since I've been able to use my stones and even my tarot cards to like leave a spread out on the table. <laughs> couldn't, couldn't possibly do it with Sybil anywhere nearby. Cause as soon as, you know, those things, those things that have, she also tends to really, really like any, like this stone. I, uh, hold it when I'm sleeping a lot of the time. And she, if it's something that I have a draw to, she wants it all the time. So, um, yeah, it's better to do those kinds of things when Sybil's not around Mona, however, um, I really like having her around when I'm doing really anything, (laughs) except I will say if I'm trying to meditate, it tends to be, she's a pretty quiet dog, Mm. but if I'm trying to meditate, then she goes on high alert and will like start barking in like the 15 minutes that I'm trying to meditate. And I don't do that very often. So, but you know, I just write it into the ritual, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Meditate now. Beware of dog barking. Yes, that's right. That's right. And you too, with all of your creatures, I'm sure there's some some encounters, close encounters of the creature kind. Well, um, tell the candle I had story. The candle story. Uh, so <laughs> I, I have a cat whose name is Nyan, and which is meow in Japanese. Mm. And um, he... We were once in Circle and there's two separate Nyan stories. One time we were in Circle and he just came in and started knocking all the candles over, like with oh his paw, boy. like, and it's like really, they were small. Really bad. They were quite small they, candles. Just And they were in like glass containers. It's just yeah. that they were on the side. He was trying to burn our house down. 
Um, and the other no one deal. was, yeah, you know, no big deal. So really having him in the ritual space is not great. But the other reason why not having him in the ritual space is great um, is that he sometimes gets really worked up on the energy that's been raised and mm. he and he goes really crazy. And this one time he just came up to me and just went chomp on my boob in oh the middle gosh. of the ritual. <laughs> and so I'm like, uh, no, no, he's not a familiar. <laughs> no. He doesn't he handle the energy. Yeah, he doesn't handle the energy very well, does he? No, yeah. He comes a little shit face. Yeah. I mean, he does it He does it fairly often anyway. Well, that's the first time he's bit my boob, I will, I will honestly say. I mean, he, be, but, he, be, uh... he, come, he becomes a little crazy. He has moods. Mm. But, um, um, yes. But I used to have another cat, um, Steiner, who I lost at um a year old unfortunately he was bitten by a snake but um he he um would actually sit with me while I was just doing stuff and he would just come in and sit like it was like you know if I was even like doing something creative and sort of magical he would just come and sit with me or like if I had a circle he would just come sit in the circle with me you know and um I would have said that he would have been my familiar had he had he survived but um Hmm. yeah yeah no, no puppies. We don't have any puppy stories, do we? I, I don't, don't think so. No. Yours no, are too big. Just cat stories. And mine are too nuts. <laughs> um. <laughs> they're small, but they're just oh, yeah, no. energetic. <laughs> yeah, I think mine would do the barking. They'd just bark, especially one mm. would just bark. So I have – we have three cats in our house, but one's my brother's and she just – she hates everybody else, so she's not included. Um, and I have a little black cat called Phoebe, funnily enough, who <laughs> um, came up to my brother at a bus stop and just decided she was going to live with him. And that was <laughs> how we got her. And my mum and I were in the UK at the time and we just got this message from him saying, oh, I found this cat. Picking <laughs> up. It's like, oh, okay, sure. Um, and she... She's that's what she's like, and she will just come in, and if I'm doing anything, she'll just get want to be on me, and want mm-hmm. to be hanging out with me. So I don't know if 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 she, I suppose she'd be. She has a really, she has a really strong energy, mm. so and she's quite a she's quite opinionated, like mm. it's very it's very individualized kind of energy. She comes in and she's just like. I'm here and I'm doing this thing and I don't care what you're doing. I'm here. I'm being present in this moment with you no matter what. Right. And then the other cat we have at the moment, she's a big, she's really big grey and white cat and she's very, very nervous and her name is Florence. Her name is Flossie. And she just turned up at our house as well. But she's like the opposite. She's really unsure of herself and she wants to be with me often for security so I wouldn't necessarily work magic with her because she's just, I don't know if she could handle it. But she will often come in and just, you know, she'll want to be near me, want to know what I'm doing. And, and But her energy is like the complete opposite. It's really contained and she's not at all sure of herself unless she's with me on my person and there's no one else around. So we've got the little tiny Phoebe black and white cat who comes in and her energy is just explosive and everywhere and really wild and like 
she's so sure of herself. And then you've got the other bigger, much bigger Graham White cat who doesn't handle anything different at all. So one of them needs me to look after her and the other one comes to me when I need her to look after me, which is very mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, so complete opposites. So a sort of a sort of a little little familiar and then a little needy spirit, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And the other the other story I spoke well not story, but the other thing that I have in our house is we have a few cat spirits. Mm. So I see them fairly regularly and when I'm doing any little thing there'll often be one or two of those hanging around. There's mm. a little black one, a little white one and a little grey a little grey cat. Mm. But yeah, at the moment I'm living in my childhood home while I saved to buy a house. So there's been a lot of cats over the years and they're all here somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised at all that there's a few hanging about. <laughs> mm. Sounds like it's a pretty cat-friendly place. Doesn't surprise me it either. Is. There's also a few dogs here too, but it's a different story. Yeah, they've got yeah. their own things going on. Uh, they're, um, yeah. They do. Yeah. <laughs> they're on a yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> they're on a they're on a different kind of plane. It's like they're very much the everyday, the what's happening right in front of them where the cats are like up here sensing all the energy. And the dogs are just like, Well what's going on? Is there food? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's good to have uh, creatures around. Yeah. I have a think oh, you go. <laughs> I was gonna say I think um one of the things uh it's not really related to up to the topic we're talking about today, but I think um being a wildlife carer and constantly going through loss um makes death more of a reality in that way, um, which is an interesting lesson to learn because we're so separate from it but it does actually impact on my spiritual practice as well in that in that way um and would that would that impact my ritual practice as well maybe i think knowing loss can definitely do that i don't really know where i was going with that i was just thinking like how important that is when you lose something you love to then be able to honor it as mm-hmm. part of your ritual practice maybe yeah yeah well it kind of does go back to what we were talking about before if that's a part of your i don't know psyche or it's something that's often in your consciousness like you're thinking about it regularly then yeah it would definitely be something you'd have to think about say for the group ritual like how you're handling this or that that's been happening and yeah, like if you're going through a loss, do you, like what should you be doing around looking after yourself to do ritual with others or should you not or should you just be doing stuff on your own or, you know, those considerations. And it would affect, I don't see how it couldn't affect what you were doing in possibly quite a big way. It depends how you process it, I suppose. Yeah. I was also thinking that you could, use that loss as part of ritual like Mm. um and honoring that aspect of life and 
that kind of thing as well. Yeah, of course, the physical aspect of losing a loved one is always really hard and that, of course, does impact on Mm. your daily life, although weirdly it's getting easier as time goes on. Um, Yeah, yeah. So zooming out a little bit further, what about, like, what about from an anthropological lens, what about culturally held traditions and rituals around death around the death process and around how we hold death in a ritual way as as communities yeah so like that kind of right uh, I guess rite of passage I guess Mm. it is like it's a isn't it so um Mm. I feel it's not acknowledged in the general populace yeah. as well as it could be, and it's not. I, agree. I still think it's not spoken about at all, like enough to to make it be a nor not a normal thing, but to make it to let people know that everyone is going to experience death and loss in their life. Everyone, it's just everyone is going to. I remember not that long ago, not that long ago, about a year ago now, I lost an auntie of mine and one of her daughter's partners who is in his 50s, in his 50s, yes. So, you know, not young, but he was he was distraught and he was not handling it well because he had not had a death in his family yet. Hmm. Whereas for me it, however old I am now, mid-30s, I have a really big family and we're all quite close and I think the first one of my relatives that I was close to died when I was three. So it's been this thing that's been happening all my life. And so I was really upset for him because I thought, oh, my gosh, like you're going through this the first time now and it's horrible and it's horrible for me. It must be awful for you to lose this person you're really, really close to. And it's not – it's – it happens. It happens to everybody and it's it's not at all – and, you know, someone will die and there'll be certain rituals that are done in the community like funerals and wakes and that kind of thing and then it's kind of it. And often unless you're really close to those people, you just have to let them do their grieving whereas it might be – Depending on what they're like, it might be they might want support, but it's hard to to know. And pe- there's not processes, there's not I don't know templates for how you're supposed to act. Like you just sort of have to go with it, even after you've experienced a few losses. So it needs more rituals, is what I think I'm saying. Yeah, I I agree with mm. you. I think I think I feel like as we've moved through the industrial age into late stage capitalistic society in the in the areas of the world that we happen yeah. to live in as yeah. individuals, um, I think that that process has really been taken out of the hands of the people in the same way I studied to be a, a birth doula after a long time I haven't practiced it but I studied to be it and then I realized after I trained I was like I'm actually more interested in attending deaths um and I haven't done that either but I haven't been in one place so 
anyway, um, the history of both birth and death coincide up until the 1900s, 1920s, both of those events were really held within the confines of a home. Um, and those processes were trusted to be held by perhaps a midwife for birth processes, but generally not. Um, and for death, a person was held in the home. And it was with the modernization of medicine and uh, that evolution. And I think that being tied in with the evolution of capitalistic society and like, how do we make money? How do we monetize things? There was this externalization of processes that really our bodies know how to do, whether it's giving birth or dying. Our bodies know what know what they're doing most of the time. And, you know, as far as mitigating pain on either end of that spectrum and for some cases in in birth processes to have assistance for safety is necessary, but yeah. it's really pretty minimal. And with the removal of the death process from the home, right, it used to be someone would die in their home surrounded by their family and different cultures had different traditions. Some you spent seven days in the house with the body. I believe in, in Ireland, there were some traditions where you spent a certain amount of time with the windows closed up or with all the windows open. So the spirit could get out. So it didn't get trapped. Um, and people would come and be there together so that the people who lost an immediate family member could be seen in their grief in their own home. And then also to bring in new energy and create new memories being in community with, um, you know, in the wake of this so that there is an infusion of joy and connectivity and love to bring in and make space for grief while transforming it. And, you know, how do you have room for that? How do you have room for a multi-day ritual, a ritual that really holds space for the process and the, the wake of a life, be it of a human being or another creature who we've loved when we're living in a way where so many people have to work nine to five jobs? How do you, how do those things fit together? Because you don't get to decide when someone dies. And you also don't get to decide how long you grieve. And you don't get to decide how long the process takes. And it's really interesting, I think, to envision what the world would look like if we really took the time to create rituals, even just if we're just looking at death, if we create a ritual around death, and holding all of the things that come up, the process itself and processing and holding that space and being in our emotions as the individual who's dying, as the individuals connected to that person and the community outside of it, like, and then moving through, like, if we were living in that way, all of our life would be ritual. We would be doing that for so many things in our lives and how different would we be feeling in our day-to-day -day life if we knew our role when these momentous occasions were happening in the community around us and we just showed up in the way that we needed to show up to hold space because it was 
intrinsic to the community that we were a part of. And like, we're so divorced from living like that. It's kind of bizarre to talk about. It's like a science fiction novel, even though I know there are cultures in the world today who operate like that. Certainly not American culture, not, not modern American capitalistic culture, you know, um, I'll stop talking. (laughs) No, no, Um, that was great. That was, that was really good. And it made me think about like, you know, like myth and mythology and stories Mm. around death that were shared and, um, and all those things. And like, we still have it, like there is still, you know, heaven and hell, depending on like how, Mm. um, or, you know, some people believe in Summerland and there's so many different things about what happens after the afterlife, in the afterlife, Mm. after you die. And it's, those myths do exist, but I also think that as, as, as we've become more technologically advanced, probably we've also started to explain those myths away as just being stories and they're just a way of transitioning to the next life. Um, one of the things that I think's kind of nice about being pagan and, you know, I do have an ancestor uh, veneration practice. I do do work with my ancestors and, and acknowledge they, them. They want you to drink gin. And they want me to drink gin. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a story I probably haven't told you, Jane. Mm. <laughs> Good story. I got I got very much slapped on the head and said, "Give me some gin," and I was like, "Okay, I'll go get you some gin then." <laughs> mm. um, that was during a ritual for sewing, so um, that I did on my own, um, which was actually my favourite part of the whole ritual. Was like the pre-ritual part where they were like, "Just give me my gin," mm. um, and you don't like uh, gin. <laughs> I don't even like gin. I was like, they did. They do. Yeah. So, like, um, I I think it is important to acknowledge those that have gone before us as well, and not just people we're related to, but like animals. Like, I have Mochi and I have Steiner on my altar. Um, my because I have like a a ancestor altar and um. Um, yeah, so I think, I also think we can have that, but people think it's weird. Like, you know, if people come to my house and they see my giant wall of, I don't know if I can show it to you. Maybe you can see it. Tree. I really like Um, the tree. Oh, yay. Um, yeah, so, I don't know. I don't know, but, um. It's important. And I think it's it's important to me. For it's sure. it's a fundamental part of who we are, our connections to other people. Like, what's more fundamental than that? And our connections to other non-human creatures as well. And when they go, or they leave, whatever happens, they pass out of this life. Of course, it's going to be like a monumental thing. And yeah, it could be your cat. It doesn't matter. You have a connection, often a really strong connection, and it's gone. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it's going to be something that needs to be processed and dealt with and we have no mechanism to do it now. We have a funeral, a one-off, quite short, one day, and then you've got the rest of your life to try and process this thing that you never have another chance to process. You can yeah, process and society this. tells you. 
you can go over it. <laughs> yeah, you can go to that grave, their grave. You have to go back to work the next day if you have a traditional nine to five. Like that's like it's, it's nothing. It's nothing at all. And I mean, re- speaking. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, and then you might realize, like months later, something happens and you're distraught over it, and it's like, oh well, it's because I lost this person six months ago. Right. And it's just sat there. Right. And that brings up two questions for me. First of all, what is the intention of ritual? You know, what to me, actually, there's this book called Sacred Dying, which is, I cannot recommend highly enough. It is beautifully written. A a person who worked attending deaths and she writes about um, rituals And the way that she uses rituals and the way she describes it is as being like washing dirty clothes. It's, Mm. it's wringing the dirt out and coming out the other side as a different version of what went in. And um, she really talks about like taking people who are, who are struggling and in pain as they're dying because they have things that they need to do and ritualizing a way for them to have those experiences so that they can, they can die peacefully. And um, I feel like that when looking at a funeral and a wake in modern Western society through that lens, what emptier rituals could we be moving into? I mean, if the intention of ritual is transforming the energy and making a portal and making space, I don't feel like having to put on stupid shoes and, you know, dress up and go to a funeral home changes the way that I experience grief or makes room for it. Like that's not, that's not a place I feel comfortable grieving or a way I feel comfortable grieving or it just feels, it feels contrived and it feels empty and it almost feels blasphemous to the, to what it's responding to for, for me personally, you know, like where's the, where's the space to let things move through your body or make noise or cry or break things, you know, whatever it is you want to do. Where's, where's that space? Yeah. I've been to funerals that have been like that. I've also been to funerals with like my closer family and it's been a packed church and everyone's been bawling and it's been loud and it's been you know people just talking through the the thing in the church and I've had both of those so I've had some really awkward difficult there is no like you know people are very emotional but it's all sort of constrained into mm-hmm. so the the ritual of it's been a bit weird yeah as you say like just not yeah contrived it it, it felt empty and then Mm -hmm. I've been to other Catholic funerals in churches and it's been full of wailing and gnashing of teeth and afterwards Mm. you feel yeah cleansed completely cleansed Mm. and everyone's been there together crying and bawling and I remember I went to the funeral of my uncle a few years ago now, one of my uncles, and yes, we're all really close. So everyone, it was again, it was packed church in the middle of um, Hobart and 
noisy, crying, everyone expressing. And I just looked over into the corner and there was a little boy with my uncle's dark coloured hair and blue eyes who was just sitting up looking in his 1930s clothes, looking out and chuckling, having a little laugh, and then he just disappeared. And for a few days I couldn't tell anyone because I thought it had upset them, but in the end I did tell my mum. I was like, yeah, well, Uncle Uncle Frank was at the funeral and she was so happy <laughs> to know that he'd been there in his little hobnail boots. And it mm. was just such a different experience. It was so – it was just, yeah, it had a lot of meaning for me and it was full mm. of people I loved and they were all grieving together. And it just came down to the fact that the people there let themselves express and yeah. the people there had been gathering almost every day for the few days before to just cry, to just express their grief. Yeah. Whereas in other, when I've been to other funerals, it's been like I haven't been around those people and it's been more difficult and the meaning hasn't been there. So yeah. it, it, you have to make it happen and I feel right. it's so, so important. And seeing how the people um, who have gathered, who have done those things, how they've come through the other side and how they have been okay as much as you can after losing these people compared to mm -hmm. others who have just had the funeral, had the burial, then they've gotten on with their lives and it's just like, no, you haven't really processed this. In my mind, I can see that you're still grieving, but it's pushed way down. Right. You're just carrying it around like a weight. So, so I was just going to say, this, the, the context is, is, it was almost the same, like there was slightly different places, but it was yeah. the same kind of static ritual of the funeral, but it was just the people there, one lot were happy yeah. to express themselves. Others were less able to in that space. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it really depends on the people who are there and what they do around those rituals. So, yes, those rituals can still can work really well. I've seen them fail <laughs> terribly, though, and I've seen them work well. But it's, it's it, in, the pl in the experiences I've had, it's not just the funeral. The funeral on its own just doesn't seem to work as it stands modern right. culture where we live, etc. within my own narrow experience. Yeah, that's, that's what I've right. seen. Hmm. Well, and it sounds like the big difference that you experienced between those two things was the willingness to show up in vulnerability to that ritual and Definitely. to be to be present, to be vulnerable, to be expressive of what was present in the present moment, which mm. which is what filled that ritual with meaning yep. and with and and made it um, a, a ritual of catharsis. Definitely, yeah. exactly it really, it. Yeah. really does come down to meaning, doesn't it? Um, yeah. Because I would say that, like, all the funerals I've been to, um, I, I actually, oh, this is going to be really controversial with my family when one of my parents die, but I don't know if I would actually go to their funeral. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because I don't see... They would see it as not caring, but for me, it's a case of, is that how I want to honour and remember and um, 
be with that person? Is mm. it in this space or can I do it somewhere else? Does, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So, um, and sure, there's like being with the, you know, community and the family and experiencing it together. But that's actually not my style either. Same. Yeah. One side yeah. of my family, I can do that. Other side of my family, yeah. can't do that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just, yeah. I was raised, yes, I was raised with it in one side, but it's also really open. These are the people who also talk about ghosts and, you know, seeing, you know, after a time of grief, they'll say, oh, old Auntie Mary came to me in my dream last night and we had a conversation. So that's the kind of thing that side has. So it, it is, there's an openness. It's, it's, it's okay. The other side of my family, very, very different and I'm not as close to them. So that's a lot harder. And again, it's almost like the container of my life has made it so that I can be that way with this, this part of my family mm-hmm. and not so much with the others. And it's just what's happened so yeah if I wasn't if I didn't have that real closeness yeah a funeral would be quite difficult right but in a different way so right. yeah I can totally see where you're coming from this as well like it's it's yeah yeah I I feel too Liz with what you're saying I not on the subject of funerals mm-hmm. but um with church still when I go and visit my family my older sisters will go to church with my parents and I say no and I've I've gone a few times through the years like like two or three times sometimes on major holidays I'll go and really the feeling that I feel when I'm there is like this is not like what we've been talking about about showing up to something when your intuition is like this is not the place where I'm supposed to be I'm like I feel like me showing up to this place that is so sacred to other people that is not sacred to me isn't appropriate. It feels like energetically, um, it feels energetically off in a pretty significant way. And I've named that to my parents a few times and they have an attachment to me going to church. And I've said, you know, I'm really, I'm totally open to connecting with what is alive and what's beautiful. And I'm going to take myself for a walk down by the river while you're at church and we'll connect with the same thing through a different path. And that they don't really like that. You know, that doesn't really work for them. But to me, I'm like, this is, this is my path to connect to that same thing. And when I'm sitting in church, I'm thinking like, why is God a he in every one of these hymns? And like, doesn't this, you know, like I'm just, (laughs) there's so many things going on in my head, so much resistance to the things that are happening. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I got a pretty strong personality and like take up some pretty intense psychic space. I'm like, I don't think it's really appropriate for me to be here in someone else's ritual you know, going in the opposite direction energetically, it seems rude. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Can relate. I can see that. Yeah. Um, um, I was just trying to find a quote by Albert Camus from the stranger and I can't find it Mm -mm. and it would have fit in so beautifully with what you were saying, but no, it's not there. I can't find it. Oh, bummer. (laughs) I have to tell you later. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Tell me later for sure. And you can put it in the show notes. 
Yeah. I can. Yes, I will. I will. I'm like, I'm reading all these other beautiful things like there is no sun um, without shadow and it's essential to know the night. Mm. And I was like, well, that's also appropriate really. But um, um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, to be sure. Hmm. Uh, well, I think, is there anything else we want to talk about? Because I feel like that's probably a really good spot to end. What do you think? Because mm. I think we could probably keep talking for ages. The way this is going, it's been great. Yeah. It's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> but, as, but as far as choosing a place to end, it's likely a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> we could find more, I'm sure. But yes. um, yeah. Um, all right. So, um, thanks. Thanks so much for being with us, Jane, and talking with us about this. And... Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been it's, fun. Um, nice to meet you, Hannah. Yeah. Likewise. And good to see you, Liz. I see you all the time, but good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get, you get good morning messages from yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. Um, just to round it off, um, where can people find us online? Can anyone find you online? Do you have anything that you, that you would like to be found around about the place? Um, not at present. I'm working on a website where I'll have some writing and music and podcasts all available freely. Um, but it's not up and rolling yet. I can give that to you at a later date and you can throw it in the show notes if that absolutely jives with you. Yeah, let's do that. Cool. All right. Um, and for us, you can find witchy.bytes on Instagram, Facebook, and you can also email us at witchy.bytes at outlook.com. Tell us what you think. We always want to hear. Um, Definitely. We want to we know whether this has an impact on you, if it gets you thinking about things, like we really want to hear about it. So come out and mm -hmm. say hello. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Yeah, thank you for listening. And Ta -ta. thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me. Soon. It's been fun. Yay.